Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Three Rivers Community Church. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, we're continuing our study in Ephesians, and we're in uh, chapter 4, verse 25 to 32 today. And uh, we're going to talk about this next section dealing with this glorious heading that we find in the middle of the text, verse 30, and that is not grieving the Holy Spirit. And so let's pray. I'm going to read the text, and we're going to jump in. You guys ready? Let's roll. Father, we give thanks to you for your grace to us today. And Lord Jesus, we ask you, Chief Shepherd, Head of the Church, King of the Universe, we ask you this morning to walk among us by your Holy Spirit. And we ask you to shepherd our hearts well. We ask you to speak to us. We ask you to give us ears that hear. We ask for hands and feet that will be quick to respond in obedience. We pray you'd bring about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And we pray you would mobilize workers to the field. For the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So Lord, today, shepherd us well toward the mission of your name, made great among all nations, beginning right here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 4, 25-32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Just a quick note as we launch into our text for today, that the tone of Paul's letters, and thus the tone of the preaching you often hear at Three Rivers Community Church, comes out of these biblical texts. It seems like, and I wrestle with this a little bit, just to be very transparent with you, I wrestle with the tone, because it seems like every week there's some sense of urgency and there's some strong instruction, and it's always got some type of edge to it, so it feels like I don't ever let up and preach any type of fluffy, airy, pump you up type junk. Often I think with the pressure of Western culture and an underdeveloped toughness in a population who knows nothing but ease, it's easy to succumb to a toned down, no edge, urgentless pop psychology that does no good to the hearer. And what I think we miss is the fact that Paul's tone is as it is, chiefly because it is needed. We believe the Bible is inerrant. We believe the Bible contains nothing contrary to fact. Therefore, the tone with which it is spoken and written is the tone with which God intends us to hear it. This is why God, in the glorious Work of grammar gave us exclamation points. This is why Jesus turned over tables sometimes. Because it was necessary. 
I think sometimes we miss the fact that there is a lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. And maybe we don't realize that people's souls are actually at stake in the meta-narrative of reality. This is why Paul's tone is never relaxed. And there's always urgency in his writing. He's an apostle. He's a preacher. He's a herald. Announcing the Father's instructions to prevent his people from being devoured by a prowling lion looking for lagging lambs and unsuspecting soft ewes. We understand our audience. Father's people united under the headship of King Jesus. With fathers, dads set apart as chiefs of homes responsible to lead them. So this morning, dads, men, I speak to you as a father to a son going off to war with sobriety and intentionality. Moms, I speak to you as a good father who desires you to fulfill the king's role he has for you in a way that's honoring to him and to you. Single ladies, I speak to you as a dad sending you off to your created part in the conflict. Your role is different but no less vital. Single men, I speak to you like a good drill instructor with the goal of sobering you up to the reality And prepping you for the leading of a conflict and taking back the king's ground. And students and our children who I love to hear going up and down the hall because those little feet, those little souls are being trained in the kingdom of God. They are the next generation of M's who will go to dark ground to retake it for the king. And I speak to you as a dad who wants to equip you. Who knows that life matters. Life is war. You need to be toughened up. You need to be made ready for war. To make war on the evil one. His dark and petty little kingdom. So Paul's tone is my tone. I fear... Taking the tone of the Bible and making it something it's not because I have to answer to Christ. So I don't want to lessen the tone or urgency because America's church and our constitution may be a little bit weak. What drives that is, is a, is, is that sometimes fear that I sometimes push too hard, but also the constant conversations I have with students that I teach. Who come to me and say that, gosh, when they leave our school and they go to church, there is no urgency. There is no instruction. The Bible is secondary. And it makes me nervous that we could be missing God's instruction to us. So this morning, whatever tone's in the text, I'm going to try to bring that tone. Okay? Does that make sense? So roll with it. And and if that bothers you, then I'm sorry. I will, I will not... I will not sacrifice the tone of the text for your comfort, lest you miss the kingdom. Remember, when we come to the book of Ephesians, it's not a neat, well-planned epistle with a sequential theological argument. As you recall, when we jumped into chapter 3, Paul took a quick excursion in verse 2 through 13 because he's about to voice his prayer for them. 
And write an introduction of his prayer, Paul launches into backtracking on the mystery of the gospel. He wanted to make sure they got it. And so Paul's writing this in real time with real pen and ink on parchment to a real church in real time. And so we understand that Paul is writing this letter of love and passion for the Ephesian church, for their good and for the glory of the king. It's a letter written by Paul addressing specific challenges for the church at Ephesus. Now the reason I remind you of this is because verse 30 is sort of in a strange place. We read verse 25 to 32. And if you read that and pay attention to it and sort of pour over it a little bit, you read verse 30 and go, geez, why didn't you say that in verse 25? Well, it's because Paul's writing a letter. And he's writing in real time with real passion to real people. And just like he does in chapter 3, verse 2, in his little excursion to make sure you understand the mystery of the gospel before he voices his prayer for them, Paul's writing, and he's talking about taking off the old self, putting on the new self, and he just launches into what that looks like. And he gets in the middle of this section, and then he says, and by the way, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And so, Paul's unpacking what it is to live in a manner worthy of our calling. Chapter 4, 1, 2, and 3. And that calling of being united as one body under the headship of Christ. And in the middle of this exhortation, because he's writing a letter, not a planned out thesis, he throws in verse 30 as a heading and as a reminder of who we are and what our sin does. And so therefore, when we read these verses, I want you to see verse 30 as the heading over this entire passage. I want you to see it as the theme of this entire passage. And remember, we've learned Christ two weeks ago. We've learned Christ. And as a result of learning Christ, we're seeking to walk worthy of the calling of being united in Christ as one body, no wall between Jew and Gentile, slave and free. We're one body united under the headship of the King, And we're learning now to walk worthy by taking off the old self and putting on the new self. And because chapter 1 verse 14 reminds us that we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the future inheritance of the realization of the full-blown, in-presence kingdom of God, we learn here in verse 30 that we grieve the Holy Spirit when we don't put off the old self. So as a waypoint, as a reference point, we're going to see verse 30 as the heading over verse 25 to 32. Does that make sense? We're looking at that as our waypoint, as our guidepost to look back to as we understand this section. Not grieving the Holy Spirit. Our passage today is almost an exact mirror reflection of Colossians 3, 8 to 12. Now we're going to go back and take time to read that. By all means, go read it. You see the passage is noted for you on the blog. But in Colossians, in this passage that I've just referenced, that our passage this morning is almost a mere reflection of, we learn that we've died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, we're to seek Christ where our life is hidden. So we put to death what is earthly. We put to death the old self and we put on the new self. So we see likewise in this instruction in Colossians that this just isn't instruction to the Ephesian church. This is Paul's instruction to 
All the churches. We've died, our life is hidden with Christ and God, and therefore, if we're in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit, we are to be putting to death the old self and putting on the new self. So, a few questions for us by way of introduction. Who does our sin ultimately grieve? If we don't put off the old self, who are we grieving? What is the object of my offense? Or better stated, who is the object of my offense? Secondly, why is this list, or what is this list, and why this list of seemingly random things? And what does taking off the old self and putting on the new self look like in practice for us? Those are three questions we want to ask and answer in our text this morning. So number one, who does our sin ultimately grieve? Easy answer. Verse 30, it's our waypoint. It's the banner over the text this morning. We grieve the Holy Spirit. Remember, verse 30 is our waypoint. It's our marker. It's our point of reference. And so we seek in the life of the church to not grieve the Holy Spirit by failing to put off the old self. Chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 here in Ephesians reminds us that we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is a distinguishing mark for those of us who are in Christ. We're under the headship of King Jesus, and that is marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Chapter 1 reminds us that we've been given the Holy Spirit as the capstone of the glorious graces that God has poured out on us in Christ. Our predestination to adoption, our being redeemed, having wisdom and knowledge to know the purpose and mystery of Christ lavished on us and His will to unite all things in Christ. We've obtained an inheritance. And the capstone of all that is we've been given the Holy Spirit as the guarantee that all that is yours. And we've been blessed with those in Christ Jesus. All of these graces have been done in us. We are His body. Our kinship is founded in Father and evidenced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Therefore, when we sin, what do we do? When we sin, we are seeking to divide that which we can't divide. Holy Spirit. When we, remember we, we said a, for a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that sin always creates two camps. Sin never unifies. Rebellion never brings together. And so when we sin, when we rebel against God, ultimately we are seeking to divide what can't be divided. And that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So ultimately our sin is against God. If I sin against you, the primary object of my sin is not you, but Holy Spirit in you. And therefore, when I sin against you, I grieve the Holy Spirit who is in us together and makes us a body. And so therefore, my sin is grievous, not so much because you or I are... This is not going to sound right, but, but it's right. It's not so much that you and I are of most vital importance, but Spirit who dwells in you is of vital importance. And when I sin against you, I sin against God. And because you are then an image bearer, you are vital, and then I also sin against you. This is why the Bible hates sin. This is why the wages and consequences of sin is death. There is no good that can ever come from rebelling against God. 
It's always bitter. It always divides. And ultimately, I grieve. I make sad Holy Spirit. When we sin, if we're in Christ, we grieve Him. And I think it's vital to note here, and this is a nice glimmer here, we don't lose Him. Paul tells us here in this passage that we grieve the Spirit, we do not lose the Holy Spirit. This is often experienced for us, as we looked at for the past couple of weeks, as godly grief that leads us to repentance. When we sin, there is, if you are in Christ, and Holy Spirit dwells in you, He will not leave you alone. He will not allow you to stay there because He is holy, and because He is perfect, and He is righteous, and He is good. And when we sin, we grieve Him. And the resulting grief we feel is that Corinthians grief that we talked about a few weeks ago that leads us to repentance without regret, right? And so that's why we grieve when we sin, is because we've grieved the One who dwells in us. And we grieve the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We experience grieving through the Spirit that leads us to repentance. We don't lose Him, but we can grieve Him. And that's a piece of good news. Our offense is first against the Spirit. And therefore, our sin affects those in whom the Spirit dwells. This is why I've said before, and I'm going to say again here, sin... It's never isolated to the person. You cannot contain sin. It may be done behind closed doors. It may be done outside the presence of other people. But it always messes up the air. And because we have Holy Spirit dwelling in us together... What ends up happening is sin affects the others in whom Holy Spirit dwells. And if I've grieved the Holy Spirit who also dwells in you, this is where this gift of discernment happens inside community and helps us to love each other into righteousness. Because I can tell and you can tell when something is wrong. Because I've grieved the Spirit who dwells in me and He also dwells in you. He can also give you discernment for me and me for you. Which, by the way, not in the notes, but side note, this is why one of the many reasons the Bible teaches we must be in fellowship and community. It is essential for walking in holiness. Because as long as I can stay isolated from the body, I can trick you into thinking I'm righteous. But if we dwell together in unity, you will pick up on my trash quickly. And guess what I don't want you to do? Pick up on my trash quickly. So my option is run from community... Or repent. And so therefore, one of the God's gracious gifts to the church is being together. This is why we hold a high ecclesiology in our churches, because the Bible holds a high ecclesiology. We need the church. You cannot do the kingdom isolated from the body. Radical life groups are not the church. They're an extension of the community of the kingdom. Now, if you start doing, if you start baptizing unbelievers, administering the Lord's Supper, training and equipping pastors, planting churches, adopting unreached people groups, and we'll plant you as a church. But if you're not doing those things that define church, it's not enough. It's an extension of the gathered body together in covenant community moving toward one mission. So we need each other. 
And we dare not sin against each other because when we do, we grieve Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Therefore, we end up creating all kinds of chaos. So in the middle of this passage, Paul tells us we don't want to grieve the Spirit together. So we want to put off the old self and put on the new self that's created in righteousness and holiness. Lest we grieve the Spirit and damage one another. So, point number two. Why this list of six seemingly random sins? You read through them, right? Speak the truth. Be angry and do not sin. Don't steal. No corrupting talk. Put away all these things. And be kind and forgive. Why these seeming list of random sins? Here you go. Each of these items listed here are uniquely crafted to destroy unity. Each of these things that Paul lists here are uniquely crafted to destroy unity. And after all, what are we dealing with in the book of Ephesians? We're dealing with the fact that the body is one. The mystery of the gospel Paul has unpacked for us is we have one shepherd, one king, and underneath him is one body. Not two bodies, not three bodies, one body. And there's no breaking down culturally between us. We are one body in Christ. And so therefore, what might be the strategy of the world system and the ruler of that world system against the mystery of the gospel. To what? Divide it. And so therefore, these aren't random sins. They are uniquely crafted to shoot fiery darts at the body to divide it. And so Paul says, don't grieve the Spirit. And oh, by the way, here are some very specific ways we can grieve the Spirit by destroying unity. So how can I make this assertion? I So off my notes here, but how can I make this assertion? Well, the reason is what I just said. But let's tie it into the text here. These commands in this text are tied to three spiritual truths Paul lists for us. The first one is in verse 25 when he says, Because we are members of one another. The second one is found in verse 30, which we set as our waypoint over the whole text. And that is, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And the third truth Paul presents is in the second part of verse 32 when he said, Because God in Christ has forgiven you. So these three truths in this text are the truths off of which these commands are given. We are members of one another. Hey, this is why church membership matters. We are covenanting to do life together. To be accountable to one another. To love each other and to be on mission together. We are members of one another. None of us is isolated from the other. Spiritually or practically. So we're members of one another. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. There's more there. We're going to take time to unpack. But for that glorious day, that return of Christ, the day in which the dead are raised to life, and those who are alive and remain are instantly changed, and the kingdom comes in full power. That's what we're sealed for. We were set, the Holy Spirit, upon us so that when that day comes, those who are His are gathered to Him because Spirit takes us where Father and Son are. 
And so, we're members of one another. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit for that glorious day. And God in Christ has forgiven us. So anything that breaks those truths is uniquely crafted to divide. Anything that breaks these truths breaks fellowship. Maybe this list is something unique to the church at Ephesus. I don't know. Paul doesn't say. But my hunch is they're generally applied and can be and should be applied in every place where the church is gathered. These aren't random sins Paul's bringing up. They are uniquely crafted to destroy unity. Well, third, and this is our really last point, but it's going to take a minute or two or 20, to unpack. And it's asking the question, what does taking off the old self and putting on the new self look like? Because after all, that's sort of the context of what we've been talking about. Because you're in Christ and we're learning to walk worthy of this mysterious gospel of unity under Christ, we take off the old self and we put on the new self. What does that look like? Well, Paul gives us this list of unity killers that we are to work toward that look like the old self, and we are to put them off and put on the new self. Said another way, state positively, how do we honor God and each other and preserve unity? How do we honor God, how do we honor each other, and how do we preserve unity? Well, A, and by the way, I have zero clue why when I cut and paste from Word into this stinking blog format that it takes my letters and turns them into numbers. And I don't know how to fix that. That's beyond what I can do. I use a Mac because I'm not smart enough to right-click. Okay, PC people? And so when I have to paste it into the blog and it goes all cattywampus, I'm stuck. So if you're walking along and you say one two three one 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 two three, I'm I'm sorry. Just you're what just deal. All right? Deal. Have no answer as to why. But these letters turned into numbers, I think, on the blog. And so I'm sorry. How do we honor God, each other, and preserve unity? A, or one, in your case. Maybe. Not sure. It's there. You can see it. It's in italics. We're to speak the truth. Verse 25. We're to speak the truth. Jesus tells us in John 8, 44, that Satan is a liar. And he is the father of lies. Jesus said when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. When we lie, we become the puppet of the evil one. And we're contributing to the destruction of the whole by seeking ourselves over the good of the others. Lying is any form that seeks to juke the truth. Lying is any form that seeks to juke the truth. The problem with juking the truth is the truth runs a point two five forty, and will steamroll you at some point in history. If you don't know, that's point two five is really fast forty. Yeah, nobody can run that, but the truth can run a point two five forty lightning fast. The problem with not telling the truth, is that it will catch up to us. We either face the truth and find grace, we dodge the truth and get crushed. In the unity of the gospel, we are to live in truth. We're to live in the truth about our identity. 
Listen, it is absolutely okay to be who God made you to be. I think one of the things that happens in Western culture, and I don't know, and maybe this is just a human problem, and I, I probably more than likely is just a human problem, but we have this concept of what we think is better or what our culture has come to value. And if it's a dominant value of our culture, we have a tendency to want to pretend we are that before we are what we are. And so it's easy to paint ourselves with brush strokes that really aren't us. And it's okay to seek the truth and be in the truth in regard to who we are. It's easy to misparent our children based on what we want them to be, not necessarily who they are. There's a proverb that is often abused and misused. And it goes like this. Raise up a child or train up a child in the way they will go. When they're old, they will not depart from it. That passage has absolutely nothing to do with raising them righteously and believing they're going to come back to it at some point in eternal history. That's not what that passage means. The Hebrew text makes very clear that it is the idea of training a child with their wiring. In other words, know what the child was made to be and train them in that direction. When they're old, they'll continue to be that. And we take it and we abuse it. And if we've got a rebellious child, well, I've, they've been trained in the gospel. One day they're going to come back. That's not what it says. What it says is, if a child was made to be an electrician, and you try to turn them into a lawyer because you think electricians are a lower class, you've abused the wiring of the child. If you take a kid who should be playing an instrument and you try to turn him into a linebacker, You've abused the wiring of the child. It's okay to seek the truth about who we are because the beauty of, of us, of the body, is. this is why Paul uses the analogy of the body. Some of us are toes. And the toe's not inferior to the eye. Try walking with a broken one. Right? Nothing in this creation is useless. Nobody in this fellowship is useless. That's a lie propagated from the evil one. And so therefore it's okay to be who we are. Not everybody's supposed to be a public communicator. It's not superior to be standing here talking to you. It's not inferior to set up chairs. And it's okay to be who God has made us to be because every part of the body is vital. I hope you feel that in this church. We try to say that a lot. We we try not to elevate some over the others. And if we do elevate some over the others, that's wrong. We are all standing as equals before Christ, equally vital and important. And so it's okay to seek the truth on who you are. Don't be something you're not. We seek the truth in our words. Be careful with slander, gossip, rumors. If you don't know, shut up. Truth in our worldview. 
We don't sacrifice the truth for the sake of being accepted in our culture. What are we going to do in the state of Georgia? Follow suit with what's sure to come down from the Supreme Court of the United States of America and begins to recognize same-sex marriage. Are we going to cave? Recently, Rob Bell has made the statement that if, if Christians continue to use the Bible, that she will be irrelevant. Okay, but when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom, we seek the truth in our worldview, we apply scripture to all things. Do not sacrifice this for the sake of acceptance among those who will go to hell, lest you go with them. We seek the truth in the engagement of our domains. Engage your domain. Don't wish you were in another one. Paul talked about this in Corinthians. Be satisfied with where God has you. Unless it's time, there, there's times to seek other domains. But wherever God has you planted now, seek the truth in that domain. Don't wish for greener grass when you need to be making the grass green where you are. Seek the truth in the engagement of your domain. That took longer than I intended it to. B, or number two. We are to refuse to sin against sin in our anger. We are to refuse to sin in our anger, thus giving the devil an opportunity to pillage our unity. In verse 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Meaning, if we sin in our anger, we have given the evil one, which he's going to talk about in chapter 6, the fiery dart to the evil one. We've taken the armor off and exposed our bare flesh to the fiery darts of the evil one when we allow sin to creep into our righteous anger. So we don't give the evil one an opportunity. We refuse to sin in our anger. The opening here, verse 26, comes from Psalm 4.4. It's a direct quote from Psalm 4.4. Be angry and do not sin. This indicates a proper anger, a good anger. God Himself is sometimes angry. Jesus was angry when He cleansed the temple, Mark eleven fifteen. If we're imitators of God, which we're going to look at that passage next week, Ephesians 5, 1, we are sometimes going to be angry too. We need the anger of John Wesley or a William Wilberforce at personal or societal sins. Or we need the anger of a Martin Luther at doctrinal heresy. Proper anger is a sign of spiritual life and health. However, however, we have to be careful with anger, lest it become forbidden like the anger of verse 31. Thomas Boston said this about sinful anger. He says it becomes an evil in itself and dishonorable to God, being the vomit of a proud heart and unmeekened spirit. See, what we can do is we can take righteous anger and we can allow it to become a consuming sin, refusing to submit to the providence of God. Or, it can become a consuming sin, refusing to act in righteousness, and then steeping in sin disguised as holiness. In other words, sin can anger can become sin when we steep on it, 
and refuse to trust the providence of God, or our anger can become sin if we steep on it and do nothing about it. We can take a righteous anger and allow it to become sin. What may be an improper anger? We must not allow ourselves to think that our wounded egos have the right to be angry over perceived slights. An example, inside the body. This is sin that can lead to a fiery dart thrown at the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So be angry, but do not sin in your anger. Don't take perceived slights as a reason to be angry and sin. Don't sit in something and steep and refuse to act. And don't be angry and refuse to trust the providence of God. By all means, be angry about abortion. Be angry about fostering and adopting and the lack of people doing it. Be angry about global and local poverty. Be angry about injustice. Be angry about broken homes. Be angry about slavery. But if it doesn't drive you and I to action for reclaiming the Father's territory... It may just be sinful fuming birthed out of rebellion against God by refusing to act. I grow weary of Christians talking about hating abortion but refusing to do anything about it by taking the children into their homes. It's awesome that we hate abortion, but what do we do when the mama decides to keep the baby and gives it up? Where are the line of people taking the babies? See what I'm saying? God, when He is righteously angry, acts. Be careful. I'm going to be, I'm hesitating where I should say this. I'm having an internal conflict. Be careful in raising awareness. Be careful in putting an X on your hand, a red X. Awareness raising must be accompanied by action. Raising awareness can be, I'm not saying it always is, raising awareness can be a clever disguise for refusing to obey a direct command. Chew on the meat, spit out the bones. If we're agents of the kingdom, we can't simply use our words. We must act too. If you're going to put an X on your hand, sign up to go on a mission to rescue people from slavery. Get out of American comfort and go. Go live in Nepal and seek the rescue of the young girls sold from the hills down in the brothels in Kathmandu. Righteous anger will drive us to global action. Third, see, we don't steal. We don't steal. Rather, we labor so that we can have something to contribute. The thief must turn into the philanthropist. Now, this is theft is a no-duh, right? Jonathan even talked about it this morning. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? But the value, the positive here in our text today is the big deal. Not so much the don't steal. It's the implication and not stealing. It's not just a lack of theft. Chances are nobody is stealing stuff out of people's pockets today. Probably nobody's going to get pickpocketed. Maybe. Hope not. If you are, put it back. Put it back. 
It's not just a lack of theft. It's the positive labor to take what one has and make it available to those in need. That's the thrust of Paul's instruction here. In other words, there should be no deadbeats in the church. No deadbeats who take and do not give. If you're a taker only, you're a thief. What happens in marriage if you never give? Does it work? No. What happens in community life if you never give? And I'm not even talking money. You need to be doing that box in the back. Drop it in as you go. Right? If your lifestyle leads you to be a taker who never gives, then you might be taking from people what they need. There is a time when all of us are in need and we need service. But when the person is in nothing but need all the time, there may be a discipleship problem. We should be laboring to be givers, not takers. I really believe here, Paul's point goes beyond the don't take what is yours mentality. I believe Paul's point is that we should be striving to make our production and ourselves available to everyone in the body because everyone is more important than ourselves. We are taught by the example of the Lord Jesus in Philippians 2.3 to consider others more important than ourselves. Are we not? And if we don't, we are shooting fiery darts at unity, seeking to divide. What are some ways you can be a giver and not a taker? Serving radical kids. If you've got children, we ask you to serve. They're always extenuating circumstances. So it's not a hard and fast rule, Right? But we're a family equipping model of ministry. It requires your engagement to serve, but also to be equipped in the role of discipling your family and your children. They do two cycles through Old and New Testament survey. You'll learn more teaching radical kids than you might take in one of my classes. And you can apply that in the home. So serve. Come set up when it's your deacon team's turn to set up. I'm so proud of our students because usually when teams don't show up to set up, you know who sets up? Teenagers. You know who makes more coffee than anybody? Josh Hines, senior at our Mercy. How awesome is that? That's, by the way, what's getting raised up back here. I can't wait for 15 years from now when this crew is coming through. Oh, my goodness. Praise the Lord. So come set up. It's not inferior. Take out the garbage. Bring a meal to somebody who's in the throes of life. Push the heavy carts for the ladies. Even when it's not your week to set up and tear down, help with the chairs. I watched Jay Ivory. Where you at, Jay? There he is. Look at Jay. Jay had a cart full of chairs, eight high. Pushing them around big burly men. They're like, look at that. Look at that chair. This is a strong boy. I'm like, won't you push the chairs for Jay? He's about to die. <laughs> Jay's about to get crushed. Jay's like 23 pounds sopping wet. Not really, Jay. I know better. You know what I'm talking about. Just serve. Pitch in. Get in a radical life group and serve the people in it. Get to know the folks and give your life away to them. Not for what you can get out of it, but for what you have to give. 
Remember we said everybody in this church is vital to one another. And if we are vital to one another, then let's give ourselves to one another. You are vital to me and to everybody else. You feel that? You should. That's a good thing, by the way. D or A, B, C, D. Four. Have to count. We use our speech to build up, not corrupt. And we do it at the appropriate time. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The idea here is that we, by the Spirit's leading, are aware of the proper occasion to speak the proper words for building up. Now, by the way, this isn't a legalistic rejection of things that can carry humor that some may find offensive. I want to make sure I say that because the things that really make me laugh and let me know you love me are sarcasm and borderline inappropriateness. I'm just confessing, true or not. And those who know me know sarcasm is a love language. I appreciate a sarcastic jab. It lets me know you care. However, I know that not everybody in the fellowship enjoys sarcasm, nor can I give it out to some people the way I love to get it. It does my heart good to, in love, tear down a brother (laughs) who knows how to receive it. My friend Glenn Getchell is one of those who has an iron will and heart, and I can say some harsh things to him out of fun, and he shoots it back and both giggle like little children. This is not a legalistic rejection of that. This is a command to build up, not tear down. If I were always serious with Glenn Getchell, I'd tear him down. He'd be like, man, you're depressing me. Stop. Right? This is a command to build up, not tear down. This is a command to know the time and the place to speak something fitting to the person hearing. Another way of putting it would be like this. Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Do to everybody else what they need done to them. In other words, meet them at their point of need and speak the fitting, building up word for them to build them up at your expense. Our goal with our speech is to build up the hearer, not tear them down. The word used here for corrupting means rotten. The idea stands opposed to building up. So don't corrupt, but build up. We wouldn't serve rotten food to our family, so why would I speak rotten words to people, right? It's our goal to speak to each as they need. Okay? Number five, E. We put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Verse 31. The idea of put away here. Literally, this word carries the word picture of picking up rocks and moving them away. If you cut grass, you know you do not want to run over rocks. So what do you do? You walk through the yard and you pick up rocks, or you have your kids walk through the yard and pick up rocks. So this is the picture. You lift rocks out of the way so that they are not problems. Like we would pick up rocks to prevent damage, we pick up these unity killers to prevent them from harming the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, we pick up and do away with bitterness. We pick up and do away with 
wrath. We pick up and do away with sinful anger. We pick up and do away with clamor. We pick up and do away with slander. We pick up and do away with malice because they will tear up the blades of your lawnmower. They will tear up unity. Bitterness. This word literally is connected to wickedness in the Bible. And it's nearly every usage. And it is sourness toward. Wickedness toward. Wrath, meaning external violent action. Anger being the state of mind steeping in sin on something. Clamor. That is literally crying out for controversy. I call it drama. Drama. I'm looking for something to be drama about. I want drama. Not clamoring. Don't be a clamorer. Don't be looking for drama. If drama makes you happy, repent. Drama free is good. No drama. Slander, literally a blasphemer, a verbal abuser, speaking blasphemous or abusive words about other people. That's not building up, that's tearing down. Malice, that is wickedness as an evil habit of the mind. Plotting wickedness in your mind. Not having control of your mind by the Holy Spirit giving you self-control. Interesting note here, and this is huge. Put away is passive voice. It's not active. Now, as you're you're studying through that, that kind of throws you for a loop a little bit. Because we know what active means. Active means something you do, right? It's in the passive voice. Meaning that the putting away of these unity killers is due to being acted on from an outside source. Whoa. Here you go. Let's not stray from the context of Ephesians. In the overall context of this book that we've been studying, this outside force must be none other than a combination of the head of the body, Jesus, through the sealing and filling work of the Holy Spirit, through the life of community in the church. In other words, by the shepherding of King Jesus, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by doing life together in unity, putting away of these unity killers will happen. If one of those is missing, unity killers are laying in the grass waiting to tear up your lawnmower blade. If you are not walking daily in communion with Christ, anything is possible to destroy unity. If you're not walking in the Spirit, you can destroy unity. If you're not in fellowship, you can be a destroyer of unity. So by Christ shepherding us, us walking in the Spirit and being in unity, we are putting away unity killers. Because life in the Spirit under the headship of Jesus will not let unity killers in. Because we will count others as more important than ourselves. Finally, verse 32, we're kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as we are forgiven. The basis of our kindness, tender-heartedness, and all those good things is none other than the fact that we're in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we've been treated that way. If you're in Christ today, this is the beauty of the power of the gospel. You are not condemned. You're not put outside. You are welcomed in. You are received. You're a child of God. And to withhold this kind of love from each other is to testify to the fact that we've never received this kind of love. And we need to be wrecked by the gospel. So, we walk worthy of our calling to be unified under Jesus' headship. And we do that when we please the Holy Spirit, not grieve Him, but please Him by shedding unity, killing sin. We take off the old self and we put on the new self.
So Three Rivers Community Church, let's make sure we are joined in the task of putting off that old self, putting on the new self, these things, pleasing the Holy Spirit, not grieving Him, and walking together in the mysterious, glorious unity provided in Christ for us to be one under His leadership and His headship. And that will provide that will create a body of people that can't be stopped on the mission of Jesus big all nations. Churches that are broken up because these things divide their unity cannot effectively do the globe. Because there's too much energy spent on fixing the whole. But when we are in Christ, walking in leadership with the Spirit and in step with the Spirit, putting to death the old self, putting on the new self, walking in these things, we can keep our eyes on the mission because not worried about the knife in my back. So through this community church, let's walk that way. Let's strive to be that way. And finally, I hope you're starting to get the gist how we close every time. Life together on mission we worship. Psalm 147, 1, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It's a good thing. And a song of praise is fitting. So it's only fitting because we're walking in the Spirit, pleasing Him, loving each other, that we would worship together our great King. So let's pray and let's sing. Father, I thank You for Your grace to us today. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your truth. Father, I pray today that You would rule this place. Lord, whatever, whatever's in the air, whatever is sitting heavy in the air, I pray you would take it away. Holy Spirit, I pray you would rule the air. You sit enthroned in the heavenlies and you have seated us with Christ in the heavenlies, Father. And you've sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. We're here. We're your people. We're gathered for your purposes. We've come today for whatever reason. We showed up in this place. And so, Lord, I pray that you would pillage the air with the power of the Holy Spirit and wreck anything that stands opposed to the gospel. And I pray that you would open wide for us the freedom to enjoy you this morning, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would wreck sin and make unity. I pray you would wreck any grief of the Holy Spirit and bring about joy. Lord, I pray that you would do a work of grace in this room that the world, the nations would feel today. Father, I pray against the effects of the evil one. and pray, God, that you would bind any work of the evil one this morning, keeping your people from you. Lord Jesus, we are yours. So here we are to make much of you. Receive it, Lord Jesus, for your glory and for our joy.